0: And you will also need your hymnal for the Confession of Faith. We're just going to keep going back to chapter 7, section 1, until everybody has that section memorized. We're going to keep hammering that issue until uh, until we've all got it. Actually, we will be looking at that. Um, But I'm going to open in prayer, and then after I open in prayer, we're going to start with Romans chapter 5 today, verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, 12 through 21. So grab your Bibles, turn there. And let's pray together. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for your covenant faithfulness. We thank you for Christ, our great covenant representative. We thank you for the gift, both of satisfaction and of obedience that he gives to you on our behalf. We thank you for his obedience for us, for the gift of life that he offers to us through faith. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who applies all these things to our hearts and helps us to Uh, to trust in you and understand the way that you work in our lives and the way that uh, you call us to yourself. Lord, we pray that by that same Holy Spirit, you would help us to examine and understand the words that we're going to be studying together today, not just the words of uh, Robertson, but the words that you have given us in your scripture, uh, words of life and truth. We pray that you would give us grace as we hear We pray for those who are still driving through the snow that you'd keep them safe on the way, uh, deliver them here uh, in one piece, Uh, keep them safe, Lord, guide and direct them, uh, and guide and direct our studies together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, we are going to start by looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Uh, this is a passage that is referenced in the chapter that we were reading this week, uh, this week, chapter 5, uh, the covenant of creation, Palmer Robertson calls it. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I will maintain the use of the language, the covenant of works. I think that's a better terminology, so that's what we're going to use. Um, but uh, he references this passage. This is one of the most important passages in the scripture for understanding the covenant of works. Uh, One of the things that you'll often see, and uh, we've alluded to it already in our studies, is that uh, there is no explicit mention calling uh, the covenant before the fall with Adam the covenant of works or the covenant of creation or the Adamic administration or anything like that. Uh, It is, in a sense, something that we infer, something that we put together theologically, an argument that we understand, and we understand it because the elements of a covenant are present in the garden uh, before Adam's fall. And we understand it also because of several places in the New Testament where we see the representative nature of Adam compared to the representative nature of Christ. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Let's read that together. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, so, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Several things uh, to point out in this passage before we get into the study of, uh, of Robertson. Uh, we see, first of all, the representative nature of Adam. We see it in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Uh, when did we all sin? Well, uh, we all sinned in Adam. We sinned by participating... Uh, federally he as our head and our representative we sinned in his sin his sin is counted to us it's imputed to us uh, because he is our covenant representative and so he stood for us in the covenant of works Uh, we see also that Adam is a type it says Um, where was it the type of one who was to come I missed it 14 thank you Uh, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So not only was he our representative in the covenant of works, but he was a pointer. Uh, He was showing forth the one who would come later, who would redeem us. And so it sets up two options, two camps in a sense. You can be under the covenant of works uh, with Adam as your head. And in fact, we all are under the covenant of works with Adam as our head, and we'll talk about that later. Or uh, you can be under the covenant of grace with Christ as your head. Uh, We need a representative in either sense. Uh, In either covenant, we need one who speaks for us, who wins the victory for us or loses the victory for us, in a sense, uh, in the case of Adam. And this is the great parallel that we have between what uh, Scripture calls the first Adam and the second Adam, between Christ uh, and the Adam who was in the garden. And then we see that parallel again Uh, in verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience to many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience to many will be made righteous. There was something lost in the covenant of works. There is something gained in the covenant of life. Uh, It was lost by Adam, our first representative. It was gained by Christ, our second representative. And there's a parallel happening here, and we see that. Uh, and the, uh, the deciding factor is obedience, uh, that obedience what was what was necessary. Obedience is what Adam could not give and did not give, uh, well, could have given and did not. Uh, and obedience is exactly what Jesus Christ has given, but in addition to that, satisfaction to the Lord and, uh, and forgiveness for our sins. So that's important for us to understand, just as we get oriented here. If we don't get to... All of the details of the covenant and all of the ins and outs of, of what we want to hear from uh, Robertson today. What we need to understand is this representative nature. It helps us to understand that the covenant of works was a covenant, uh, that there was something at stake, as uh, as Robertson says uh, in his first chapter, that the covenant was a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, that it uh, it holds out to us life and death, and it holds out to us life and death based on. Uh, a requirement that God gives to humanity in Adam. So, uh, with that in mind, we're going to start to look at uh, chapter 5. You will notice on your handout, uh, it says in some places chapter 5, it says in other places chapter 4. It's chapter 5, we're on chapter 5 today, uh, the covenant of creation, the covenant of works. And as we get oriented, uh, I want you to see in your, your handout as we had last time, there is an outline uh, that outline is a little bit f- more full this week than it was last week, so you can, uh, you can take it home and, and use that as a guide for reading through if you need to catch up on what's going on. We will not uh, cover everything uh, that is in this chapter, and, uh, and in fact, I think we shouldn't try to. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, get, uh, I begin to fumble if we're trying to cover everything, uh, and so instead we're going we're gonna to pull out, you also have in your uh, handouts, Some discussion questions, and so we can dip into the ones that seem interesting or important to us. Uh, We can go back and forth where we are, but I want to start with this uh, this first section in your outline, and really the main argument of this chapter, the argument is to explain God's covenant interactions with our first parents before their fall into sin, Uh, and in doing that, Robertson does it in a way that may be unfamiliar to many of us. Uh, when we think of the covenant of works, probably we think of the, uh, what, he, what he would term the sort of uh, the bare covenant, uh, just that probation period in the garden, just the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Robertson says that we need to expand that. We need to see the covenant of works in two aspects. He calls them the general aspect of the covenant of creation and the focal aspect of the covenant of creation, Uh, and this might be unfamiliar to many of us, although it is not without precedent. Uh, In fact, what we see Robertson doing here, even if we're not familiar with the way that he's doing it, uh, is wrestling, as many theologians have wrestled, uh, with the larger pre-covenantal or pre-fall duty that man has as creature. Uh, you see this in a lot of uh, Dutch Reformed theologians, especially. They, they almost uh, bring in uh, w- what they sometimes call the covenant of nature. So Gerhardus Voss talks about that. Hermann Boving talks about that. A- and, and in a general sense, the covenant of nature, what they're calling the covenant of nature, is different from what uh, Robertson is calling the covenant of creation. Uh, the covenant of nature, as they would term it, is, is this sort of general sphere in which God's general grace... Uh, not his particular grace, but his common grace operates for all of his creatures. And there is a relationship that we have just by virtue of being creatures to the God who created us. In fact, uh, that is exactly what the Westminster Confession says. And so here's where we should turn there and go back to that first section. Um, so, so I think if we see this, uh, we'll see why Robertson is going about this argument the way that he is. He's You know, he's not just talking about the tree. He's also talking about things like marriage and Sabbath and labor and things that we would sometimes call creation ordinances. And we wouldn't think of them necessarily in connection with the covenant. uh, But Robertson is connecting them with the covenant, and and we need to see how that works out. So chapter 7 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator. Stop there. That's what uh, Louis Burkhoff, other theologians along with him, that's what they would call the natural relationship of man to God. Not necessarily the covenant relationship of man to God, but what duty does man owe to his creator as his creator? By virtue of being a creation... What duty do we owe to our Creator? Now, this is radically different from the waters in which we swim, right? Uh, We declare these truths to be self-evident, that God created all men equal, uh, and uh, and this Creator has endued us with certain inalienable rights, uh, the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of property. And so in our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, we connect God's creation of man with what we are entitled to. God has created us, therefore we have rights. The Westminster Confession says God has created us, therefore we have duties. It is not an entitlement program, uh, and in fact, it's not even a way to gain anything for ourselves. We see the same language in the New Testament where Jesus talks to his disciples And he talks to them about being servants. he says, here's the way that you should approach the Lord. When you've done all of your duty, you should say, I have simply done my duty. Uh, We don't do the duties that God has called us to and then feel like it entitles us to some uh, wonderful gift or some merit uh, before him. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith is establishing what some theologians have called the natural relationship of man to God. Not yet a covenantal relationship, but a natural relationship. That by virtue of being creatures, we owe obedience unto him as their creator. And it could stop there. The Lord could have created the world, uh, called Adam and Eve simply to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it. Uh, He could have given them Sabbath and labor and all these things to do and just said, there you go. That's it. You owe me duty. I'll watch. Things will turn out okay. Uh, But uh, the, the confession goes on to say, yet... So we owe obedience, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. So the natural relationship of man to God is not enough to bring us into a saving, uh, uh, covenantal relationship with God. It gives us duties, uh, and since the fall, all those duties leave us condemned. You can see that in Romans chapter 1. They know God, Uh, the things that he's created— uh, reveals who he is and yet in our unrighteousness men suppress the truth and we are without excuse, right? Because we know that God exists, there's this natural relationship and yet we suppress it, we are without excuse. And so this is what the confession is getting at, that we couldn't have any fruition of God as our blessedness and reward. How can we, how can we go beyond this natural relationship of creator and creation this immensely wide gulf that we can't span, how do we go beyond this, this duty uh, relationship that we have that cannot merit anything good in God's sight? How do we come to know him and partake of him as our blessedness? Well, that's what the covenant of works originally offered, and that's what the covenant of life gives to us through Jesus Christ. And so when we're thinking, as, as Robertson has us thinking, uh, between what he calls the general aspect of the covenant and the focal aspect of the covenant. This is something that we do see in the Westminster, though it's not spelled out specifically in the way uh, that, uh, that Robertson is giving us. Are we clear on, on where we're going so far and, and just trying to wrap our minds around uh, what's happening? Any questions so far? What, what chapter did you again? Uh, Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Thank you. So one of the ways that you can think about it, using his, his focal terminology, um, I think it was last Christmas, my, uh, my kids got me one of those big old mag lights that you can kill an intruder with, right? The, the one that takes the 4D batteries and you can, yeah. Um, and you, you know those mag lights, they've got the beam that you can focus, but even when you focus the beam, you've got that bright center and the dull outline. Uh, Think of it in in that way. This is what Robertson is, is telling us, that there is a context, a relational context, in which God gives the covenant of works. There's a focused, determinative requirement, that requirement of not eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that is the one that determines man's future. Will he live or will he die? Will he partake of God as his blessedness and reward, or will he be separated from God uh, and cast out of his presence? The focus of the covenant is on that one command, not to eat or uh, of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it's set in a larger context of, God, uh, of man's duty as, it exists, as he exists as a created being. Here's the way, um, uh, which one should we choose? Guy Prentice Waters. Uh, he says, God required of Adam ongoing obedience to the moral commands that he had obligated that had obligated him since his creation. There he's talking about what we might call the natural relationship of man. Let me read that again because I, I flubbed it the first time. God required of Adam ongoing obedience to the moral commandments that had obliged him since his creation. God also required of Adam obedience to the superadded command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there we see this larger context, the general aspect of man 's duty to God, and then we see this determinative, focused aspect of the covenant of works, not to eat or drink, not to eat uh, of the tree as a knowledge of good and evil. Um, and so this is what what Berkhoff is trying to get across to us here, and I think it's just really important that we understand. Uh, that, that when we're talking about Sabbath, when we're talking about labor, when we're talking about marriage, these are not things that were ever held out to man as you can gain life by observing Sabbath. They were never held out to man to, to say you can gain life by, uh, by being in a marriage. The one requirement held out to man was uh, on the day you eat of the tree, you will die, implying that if you do not eat of the tree, you will continue to live. You will continue to have access not just to the tree of knowledge of good and evil but to the tree of life from which man was cut off after that sin. Okay? So we need to see this, this larger relationship but also this focused relationship. Steve, help me out here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good way to think about it. Um, and we see that in some of the other administrations of the covenant of grace. For example, uh, the covenant with Abraham. Well, there was a particular covenant sign, the sign of circumcision, which we know has been done away with for the New Testament church. We're not required to circumcise our boys on the eighth day. And yet, faith in God's covenant promises does endure. And so when you see God's covenant with Abraham in the New Testament in Galatians, it picks up on the requirement of faith. Circumcision was not just an external duty. It was a sign of believing in God's promises. It became a sacrament uh, that God gave to his church under under the Old uh, Testament dispensation. He gave them this sign whereby they would uh, partake of this sign, they would apply this sign to their children, uh, as a way of of, uh, showing forth that they believed that God's word was true. We do the same thing now, though the sign has changed. What's the requirement that carries over from the covenant with Abraham? It's faith. We see that in Romans, we see it in Galatians, so we are saved together with the man of faith, Abraham. We see the same thing in the Mosaic Covenant, Uh, that there are uh, moral requirements that are explicit in the Ten Commandments that we don't find before then that do carry on. There are other things that don't carry on, right? Uh, We don't worship in the same way as the Old Testament church. We don't have to go to a a tabernacle and have sacrifices, and yet uh, the Ten Commandments do reveal God's moral commands for his people, which endure for all time because they're not only a... a, um, a picture of of that one covenant administration. They are a picture of God's character, right? It begins the the Ten Commandments begin with "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." Uh, it starts with who God is, and then He gives us moral commands. And because God does not change, His commands don't change. And yet, there was uh, a, a church uh, in in the previous administration which had. Uh, All sorts of judicial laws, had all sorts of ceremonial laws which do not carry over. So I think you're right. There are uh, larger aspects of covenants that do always carry over, and we're we're caught up into them. Some of them are meant to pass away, some of them are not meant to pass away. And I think uh, that Robertson has picked out, through through Sabbath, labor, and marriage, three creation ordinances that we very strongly need to hold on to as a New Testament church, as, as things that are still binding by the way, not only on Christians, but on all people, all creatures. Sabbath is a gift, he points out in the book, not just to Christians, but to creation. He points out the fact that Sabbath is a gift to the land, uh, that because uh, the land was not given its Sabbaths during the time of Israel in the Promised Land, he pulled them out of the Promised Land, and the land had its rest for 70 years. Uh, Sabbath is meant for more than just believers. Marriage is meant for more than just believers. I, as a Christian pastor, have performed the marriage of two unbelievers. Why? Well, because we believe that marriage is given to all people. I would not perform the marriage of one believer to an unbeliever, uh, but we believe that marriage ought to be uh, practiced in, in all cultures at all times. Uh, it ought to conform to the biblical ideal of one man, one woman. But there are some things here that are that are carrying over. Thank you, Steve. Good. Other questions as we're just dipping our toes into this larger covenant context of uh, of the covenant of works. The first discussion question I had there was essentially, do you understand what he's doing, Uh, do you agree with it, what remains unclear, what still needs to be said? Or if you prefer, uh, Mike, go ahead. Now, to use, to use this metaphor of the maglite, right, the, the, the dim sort of background and the bright center, um, second question I have, how do each of these three general aspects of the covenant of creation serve as background for Adam's probationary test in the garden? What do these explicitly, these ordinances, not other ones, but the ones that he draws out, uh, he says that there is a, there's a unity between these and that probationary test. Sabbath, marriage, labor. So, so, what is the importance of the background between those three and the command that God gave to Adam, and and the way that they interrelate? What do you see there, Steve? I'm going to get to Kathy in just a minute. As you're talking about that, Steve, my mind goes to 1 Corinthians, right? In in the modern church, we have the digital analog divide where we think we can live our lives in a a cyber universe. And Bill Sykes recently sent me an article from the AP about uh, pastors who are leading churches in the metaverse and virtual reality and these pastors who are virtually baptizing people. And, you know, there's a debate over whether that's a valid – it's not a valid baptism. Uh, it's not a valid baptism. There's no body being applied, you know, water being applied to a body. Uh, baptism is a physical thing. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a physical thing. Uh, and uh, in our culture, we've got this digital and analog divide. In that culture, they had the, the dualism uh, of the Greek philosophers between body and soul. And you had lots of uh, Christians saying, well, you know, who cares about the body? Now, as long as my soul is saved, I'll be okay. And the whole part, a uh, uh, whole point of Roman or, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, no, the body also is important. Christ died in a physical body. He was resurrected in a physical body. Uh, he came to deal with the physical and spiritual death that was brought in by Adam's sin, and he's the one who reverses the curse that has come upon us because of the covenant of works. We have to be embodied, and God's plan for humanity and for, and for his creatures, his, uh, his elect is that they would have an embodied salvation, soul and body together. I like that. Kathy, you were going to add to it. So when we do church on Zoom, does that mean we're not doing it I think uh, when we do church on Zoom, we're doing the best that we can. Um, we do not do church on Zoom um, willingly, in a sense. We, we did it a couple weeks ago because there was snow, uh, because it was not safe for people to travel, And I think, uh, speaking for myself and not the elders, I think in that situation, uh, Zoom church is better than no church. There are things that we do not do on Zoom. We do not partake of the Lord's Supper on Zoom. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, th- I think, um, yeah, I, I don't know that I would say better or worse, right? I, I don't know that I would say, uh, I would say Zoom church is better than no church. I would not say that family worship together is worse than gathered worship. Now, I would say that regular family worship is not a substitute or a replacement for gathered corporate worship. We have a command not to forsake the gathering together of the saints, it is not enough for one father to decide, I'm the priest of this household, and therefore I will teach my children. No, you need fellowship and input from other believers outside your own family. And that's why we gather together. That's part of that, that commandment. Um, you know, if there's a snow day, it's unsafe. Do what works best for your family, serve the Lord as you can in those situations. Now, we always have to deal with, uh, with the occasionals that come up. Uh, but they shouldn't overturn the uh, the principles that God has given us. Scott.
1: There's a uh, necessary but insufficient uh, that, that is appropriate yep. here, so that you don't <clears still throat> make the false closure. do to
0: this. Yeah. That's both. Well, yeah. Um, your original, or I think your question a few minutes ago was about Sabbath and marriage and mm-hmm. labor and what mm-hmm. it Add to the. yeah 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 another thread that Robertson points out when he's talking about um, about the command right he talks about the command for the sake of the command uh the command that uh requires radical obedience. This is where he is later talking about the focal aspect of the covenant. Uh, and he says, you know, there was nothing in itself that differentiated the tree of knowledge of good and evil from the other trees. In fact, we read in Genesis that, that Eve saw that the tree was good for food. It was desirable to the eyes. It was beautiful and nutritious like the rest of the trees. The only thing that, that set it apart was God's command. And so now, obedience has to be on the basis of the raw word of God, obedience for the sake of obedience. And he parallels that uh, to the experience of Israel in the wilderness and then Jesus in the wilderness, this idea that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, And so it's this idea of is God's provision going to be sufficient or do I also need what I can gain from creation? That's the tension of the Sabbath, isn't it? Am I able to take a day and this was the tension for the agrarian culture in, in Israel. Are you able to take a year, a Sabbath year sometimes, to let the fields go fallow and trust that the Lord will provide for you because your brain tells you that's not how farming works, right? But God's word tells you it will work. And every week we look at our schedules and we say, can I actually take a day where I don't do the work that ooh needs to be done by Monday? Will I actually get ahead? Will will I actually be provided for? And at that point, we have to obey for the sake of obedience. And I think there's a parallel there. That's another thread. Uh, One more. Um, Notice that the disobedience of Adam happens in the context of his marriage. What does God say when he shows up? He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, Eve was given to Adam, as Robertson points out, to be a helper corresponding to him. They had a goal together of cultivating the earth, of subduing the earth, uh, of of living out uh, this command that the Lord had given him uh, and them together, and she was supposed to help him, and she wasn't helping him. She was uh, pointing him in the wrong direction, the, the direction that the serpent had pointed her. And God says, well, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have done this thing, curse it or you. Uh, and so th- there is this larger context in which the drama of uh, obedience in the garden plays out. Anything else before we, we move on to a few other points? Nick. Yeah, he does say that. Uh, I, I don't know that I would say almost. He, <laughs> he hits that one pretty hard. Yeah, go ahead, Nick. Sorry. Yeah, and, and it might depend on how you conceive of work, right? Do you have Do you have a day that you do the things that have to happen around the house? You know, if you're working five days a week, when do you clean the bathrooms? And that's work too. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of all sorts of other tasks, um, and I do think he 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 strikes this balance where, um, or he's he's pointing out this uh, this idea that recreation ought not to go beyond its bounds. Uh, we ought to be industrious, whether it's in our employment or in, in the other duties that we have in our lives. You know, we can tend, as I've mentioned before, talking about Sabbath, we can tend to blur the lines. So we work when we ought to be resting, we rest when we ought to be working, and it becomes this gray mush instead of having you know, black and white divisions. Here's where you can tell uh, of course, that, that O'Palmer Robertson is a Presbyterian pastor. Uh, he sets out at the beginning to tell you about the covenant of works, and he spends more than half of his time telling you about the Sabbath. Um, and, and he spends most of his time on the first point, as uh, as I often do and will do today, just so you know. Um, but I, I, I like that. I like the way that he he points this out. But yeah, this this idea of the uh, the labor and and the rest and the way that that uh, that uh, gives that background there. Uh, let's skip down a little bit. Let's jump over the Sabbath, because we've talked a little bit about this already. Um, let's look at this, this question under marriage. Uh, we've got this current societal debate about marriage, sexuality, gender identity. Why is it important for believers to maintain the significance of merit as marriage as a creation ordinance, and not merely something that is a part of a particular culture, or an expression of the Old Testament law, or New Testament law, And as a bonus follow-up question, not just in our debates with folks outside the church versus inside the church, what about our debates between believers, professing believers and their ideas of marriage roles? Not just this idea of gender identity and human sexuality, uh, but well-meaning believers that would say, well, you know, um, marriage, yeah, uh, a husband and a wife, but they're really on equal terms. There's no head, uh, there's no submission, Uh, There's an equality that happens in the marriage roles because he points out uh, the roles in marriage as being a creation ordinance as well. So either one that you want to take. Why is it important for believers to understand that this is an ordinance of creation and not just a cultural expression? And, and he does point out those three, what he calls aberrations, uh, that scripture uh, bans. So polygamy, divorce, and homosexuality uh, in marriage. Uh, and I think he makes a, a decent, though the pretty succinct, argument for those things. So, so what about this creation ordinance? Uh, why else is it important for us to hold on to this? Creation versus culture. Mike, again. Yeah, we mentioned earlier Romans chapter 1. And and notice that that is one of the primary places in the New Testament. It's not the only one. uh, That Paul talks about what he calls uh, unnatural affections. Uh, Perverting the natural relationship of a husband and a wife into unnatural relationships between a woman and a woman or a man and a man. And that is the context where he begins with what can be known about God is clear to them so that they're without excuse, but man and their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. And so by perverting the truth about marriage, we're not just changing our culture, we are denying, the, as Mike says, the imprint that God has put upon creation. And he goes on to say that that, that, is, uh, that is both a, uh, a sin itself and a judgment. You see that, that language over and over again, well, they... They pervert the truth of God, so God gives them over. And so then they go another step further, and so God gives them over. And so they go another step, and God gives them over, and it's this downward spiral of depravity uh, where we are denying the very God who created us. We look at our bodies and say, well, no, that's that's not what that's made for. It's made for this other thing that I want to do with it, right? And so we're, we're taking all of the the, uh, the truth that God has baked into our biology and our humanity, and we're saying... I don't want it to, to work that way because I don't want God to determine who I am or what I can do. And it's a suppression of, I'm sorry? It comes down to a simple thing, It does come down to obedience, right? And it comes down to this idea of I don't want anybody else telling me what to do. Uh, and it's not just a matter of uh, what culture are you in or what do we understand about gender expression or, or all these other things. There are complicated issues in that but it comes down to obedience as Lee says Uh, Jay and then Kathy
1: Mm-hmm. Right really, you humble yourself and do that, your life changes. Mm-hmm. Without it, mm-hmm. you go on to your own way, like you said, if
0: spiral into uh worse
1: and worse situations because you
0: put yourself in mm-hmm. because you didn't recognize God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and notice in that discussion uh that that marriage uh, I'm sorry, divorce is an allowance because of sin. It is not a mandate because of sin. Right. 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 Uh it is allowed if one spouse is unfaithful to the other uh, for the, the spouse who has been cheated upon uh, to sue out a divorce, says the, the confession. It's allowed. It's not necessary. Uh, now, it may be very painful, and I don't want to, having not been through that, I don't, I don't want to you know, presume to know the, the difficulties that that would take, but it, it's important to understand that, that Christ still goes back Because of your sin, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce, but from the beginning it was not so. And he goes back to say, uh, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He encourages us not to make use of that allowance uh, if uh, if we can get by without it. Kathy. Uh, And it's all there in Romans chapter 1. Whether it's a a sexual uh, refusal to balthony to God or or any other uh, moral, you know, when you get to that list of sins and depravity at the end of Romans, it leaves no stone unturned. Nobody can look at that and say, well, that doesn't apply to me haters of parents, <laughs> you know, come on. Uh, every, uh, every uppity novel that you had to read in college where the, the, uh, the person goes away and gets an education and comes back and despises their hometown, every one of those is condemned by haters of parents. Uh, and so it leaves no stone unturned. We see all these things uh, and, and it's present everywhere. All right, let's jump down to the end. We have just a few minutes left and the all important question Uh, And the question is, uh, so this is under the probation test, and and you can deal with some of these other questions, Uh, but it's the third bullet under uh, the focal aspect. Since Adam, our first covenant representative, broke the covenant of works, is it still in effect? I've already answered this in a sense, but I want to hear you tease it out. What would you say? Is the covenant of works, do this and you will live, Still in effect. Robertson talks about this a little bit, so you can steal his answer if you want. Or you can be super smart and come up with your own. Mike. So one of the ways we can see that it's still in effect is that its, uh, it's punishments are still being meted out. That's what, that's what Mike's saying, uh, that it is still in effect as a covenant that condemns us. Yep, good. Yeah, so it's still in effect in the sense that Christ has fulfilled it for us. So you sometimes hear people say, well, actually we are saved by works, but not by our works, by the works of Christ, by the obedience that he gives. Um, in fact, if you still have your confession out, if you don't, get it out. Take a look at chapter 7 again. But now sections 2 and 3. And this is going to give us the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So section two says, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Do this and you will live. Uh, And uh, and that is uh, there. But it says, man by his fall, this is section three, man by his fall having made himself incapable of life by that covenant The Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring faith. Now, why did God make a uh, a second covenant? Not because the old one was gone, but because the old one no longer could bring us to salvation. Why? Is there something wrong with the covenant of works, or is there something wrong with us? Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant. The purpose of the covenant of works in the first place, given to Adam, was do this and you will live. And in fact, uh, as we see in Leviticus chapter 18, uh, as we see in other places that, that uh, are even brought forward into the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 3 verse 12, uh, in uh, other places that are escaping me at the moment, God says, God speaks of the law in this way, those who do them shall live by them. And it, it still remains a genuine offer. If there's anyone who can fulfill the covenant requirement of God, they would live by doing those covenant requirements. Well, guess what? We can't do that anymore. We are all broken by sin, we are all in sin under Adam, and we're under the slavery of sin, and so we in him have broken that covenant relationship, that covenant of works. We are condemned as sinners by the covenant of works. It's still in effect because it still condemns us. Romans 1 again. So they are without excuse. What do you mean they're without excuse? They're condemned. The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who want to deny the relationship they have with the Lord of, of creation. Michael Horton uh, talks in one place. He says, you know, I hear people say uh, that, that, uh, that I don't uh, want a religion. I want a relationship with God. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And his answer is you're already in a relationship with God, although it's probably a relationship that you don't want to have. Right? You are condemned. That's a relationship. That's a covenant relationship. By the covenant of works made with all humanity in Adam, we are condemned. It's still in effect. So what do we need Notice that it says in chapter chapter 7, section 2, that life was promised. That's what Adam could obtain for himself and his children, his posterity. Life was offered. Well, now we need more than that. And so section 3 says, uh, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein God freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation. Not only does he give us the life that was uh, promised in the first covenant, But it's salvation to redeem us from the curse of the first covenant, having been broken through Adam. Listen to what uh, Herman Boving says. And we'll end uh, sort of, yeah, we'll end here. Uh, But I think this is is really good. Uh, So Herman Boving says, God stands by the demand that life can be obtained only in the way of obedience. And when a person violates his law, that law is expanded with another. The law that the violation must be paid for by punishment. After the fall, therefore, God lays a double claim on humans, that of payment for a penalty for the evil done, and that of perfect obedience to the law. So what he calls a double demand, satisfaction and obedience. Uh, It says the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, therefore, consists in the fact in the latter, in the covenant of grace, God asserts not one, but a double demand, obedience and satisfaction. God asserts not one, but a double demand, and that with this double demand, he approaches not humanity in Adam, but humanity in Christ. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace primarily differ in that Adam is exchanged for and replaced by Christ. Christ the covenant of works is still in effect in that it condemns us. The covenant of grace is God's remedy through Jesus Christ to give us not only the life that he offered in the first covenant, but salvation from the condemnation that we deserve. And it happens by being transferred from the headship of Adam to the headship of Christ. And With the rest of our semester, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the covenant of grace. We're going to look at God's life and salvation. and We're going to see it administered in various ways. And in fact, we're going to start by seeing it show up in the garden in chapter three when God shows up and gives that Proto-Evangelion. And that will be next week, uh, Lord willing, in chapter six. So let's close with prayer.